It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. The trains are moving and they are on the way to crazy town. Look at it another way. I think the two trains, they're headed for each other, it feels like. (laughs) We saw some huge crashes this week, especially yesterday. We're recording on Thursday. On Wednesday, so much drama and suspense on the house side. So last week... It was announced at the end of the week, hey, sports gambling is going to come up in House Judiciary on Tuesday. It had amendments at every step of the process, and I should pause and say there were two bills. One was the bill that passed the Senate. That is the original sports gambling, or I think it's called sports wagering bill. The second bill was amendments to the first bill. Now, why did they need two bills? Why didn't they just merge it into one bill, you might ask? And that's because the Senate didn't want to take another substantive vote on sports gambling. It was hard getting that bill out of the Senate initially. They had to do it with Democratic votes. It was an unusual move by the Senate Republicans because usually they have a rule. It's a understanding that they're not going to move any legislation unless the majority of that caucus wants it to move. And this was a rare move. That's right. So that bill goes through judiciary, then it goes through finance, and then it gets to rules. And yesterday, things kind of started to crumble in rules, I would say, when there were tons of amendments. And Chairman Hall said, like, I'm not taking any more amendments. We'll hear the amendments that are here. Everyone else, take your grievances to the floor. I think Democrats started to understand this week that the Republicans needed their votes because there is a lot of Republicans who have concerns about gambling and Democrats were leveraging that power and it just made for an explosive environment yesterday. Fast forward to the House floor last night. So we're outside the House chamber on the second floor. There's some audio there. By the way, dozens of lobbyists, many of them we presume are representing some sort of interest on the sports gambling bill. And you just hear gasp when some of the amendments start rolling out. One amendment in particular, Representative John Autry, he is a Democrat down in the Matthews area of the state down near Charlotte. He has an amendment that will take out your ability to gamble on college sports and amateur sports, which would be like your Olympics. So your bill sponsor in the House, Representative Sane, stands up, says, I urge you to vote against this amendment. And then the amendment passes overwhelmingly. Now, usually your bill sponsor stands up and says, don't vote for this amendment. It's a party line vote or something of that nature. No, it was like 62 to 30-something. Representative Jason Saint is in the leadership, I would say. He's the senior appropriations chair. I saw the vote last night, and it looked to be a broad coalition of your most liberal Democrats, or I should just say Democrats, because they seem to really have stuck together. Few Democrats voted with Jason Saint and voted no, and your more conservative Republicans concerned about gambling. This whole thing is interesting because, number one, you should know that the speaker had to recuse himself 
from this vote. And so the speaker was not involved in any of these negotiations on this bill. I think that's important to know on the House side. Yeah, so the bill gets dinged up pretty bad. And you could see a lot of desperation among lobbyists. You could see it happening right outside the chamber. You saw folks come out with a list of names and they were doing vote counts. And you just, the thing is you don't see that very often. You kind of know what's going to happen going into it. You love talking about this, that back in the day, things failed on the floor. You didn't know because back in the day, they let things come up. So anyway, usually you know what's going to happen. But you saw all of these lobbyists, you saw legislators come out. They would go sit in the conference room. They would pull people out. They would go back, talk to those lobbyists. I mean, it was it was really fun to watch. But what's interesting is that they took up the amendments to the Senate bill first. The, that bill that was full of amendments, not amendments themselves. That bill passed by one. And then they take up the original bill. And that bill fails. By one. Speaking of off the House floor, it was noticeable yesterday that a few legislators walked off the House floor and when it was time to vote, did not go in. And usually what you hear, if you're outside the House or Senate chambers, when it's time to vote, the doors swing open at every entranceway and you have a sergeant at arms who yells out, vote, and that's your cue to get back into your seat and vote. You have about 15 seconds to vote. And those legislators just sat there and did not go in. So the big question is, is the bill dead? Is there a path to salvage it? Next week, we're looking at an adjournment that could be Thursday or Friday. But I do predict this, guy. There will be some consequences, both for Democrats and Republicans, who went against this bill. Just a few minutes ago, Brian Murphy, who is a sports reporter for WRAL, said that he had talked to Representative Sane, and there was one House member, Republican, who voted for the amendments and against the original bill. And Representative Sane said he knew that was going to happen, but he told Brian that other votes were shocking and there will be a story on it. So it seems like we're going to know who maybe didn't tell the truth to the bill sponsors. That is a cardinal rule down at the General Assembly. And I think the leadership on both sides of the aisle in both chambers, when they go into that caucus room and they're counting votes, if you say you're going to vote one way and you vote another way, that messes up the whole system and it's a good way to get in the doghouse. Yesterday, Corey Bryson had on dumpster fire socks. (laughs) <laughs> and it seemed fairly accurate because that was not the only mess that happened yesterday. Yeah, on a day where things just aren't going very well at the General Assembly, why not just talk about marijuana next? That's right. The House Republican Caucus took that up and they had talked to some reporters afterwards. There were multiple people that said they formally voted it down in caucus. They wouldn't be taking up Senator Rabin's medical marijuana bill on the House side, which doesn't come as a shock. We've talked about it a couple times. There are people who are vocally against that on the House side. So not a huge shock. So if sports gambling is not enough, if marijuana is not enough, we also decided let's take up Medicaid this week. Let's rewind 
to start off this conversation. We saw something last weekend that I would say is unusual. So the American Cancer Society Action Network dropped an ad this past weekend targeting Majority Leader John Bell, describing him as an impediment to the enactment of Medicaid expansion in North Carolina. They also highlighted the fact that Senator Jim Perry, who we all know is very close to Majority Leader John Bell, they highlighted that he had voted for it in the Senate. Got my attention because Senator Perry actually posted, I believe on Monday, that this ad was airing and they were trying to divide him with John Bell and he was having nothing of it. I can tell you, ads like that do not work. You are only going to put yourself in a very politically vulnerable position as an interest group down at the General Assembly. Having conversations, telling Representative Bell what you want, even speaking to him and telling him your displeasure that, you know, the House isn't moving Medicaid, that's all fair game. But to go up on TV is only going to bring you lots of pain. I did hear from folks, so I would ask you this. What would you say to people who said, oh, these ads aired and now the House is doing Medicaid expansion? Seems like they worked. I don't buy it. For one, I think that, you know, we had Leader Bell on the podcast. We had him on at the beginning of session with Senator Jay Chaudhary. And Leader Bell talked about how he was working on Medicaid and what he wanted to see with Medicaid. Clearly, they want to do it differently than the Senate. And the Senate has expressed their dismay with what the House is doing. But to say that John Bell is in the way, someone who, by the way, is doing what his caucus is voting to do. So they're telling him to negotiate. He's negotiating. But to say, you know, he's standing in the way, he can't buck his caucus. And we know that caucus from over the last two years has been very concerned about Medicaid expansion. To have him override his caucus to escape from an ad from the Cancer Society would be poor form. It's not the way the General Assembly works. So all of this to say (laughs) that on Wednesday, the speaker announced on the floor that members should watch their emails for a health committee meeting in the morning. And so everybody starts talking at the General Assembly. That means it's Medicaid expansion. We all know what it means. And then after session, they released their bill, the House version. Shortly thereafter, Senator Berger released a statement on that bill. Yeah, pretty much said they've gone from no to wanting to study it. We had a study of it in the budget back in 2021, and we know that work group has been meeting. And I think what Senator Phil Berger is saying is that, look, we know what we got to do. Let's just do it. I think Speaker Moore, and I'm just guessing here, Speaker Moore is probably thinking, let's get past the election, see how that plays out. We have some, you know, they want to get these super majorities. Let's not let this issue get in the way. But there seems to be some frustration between the corner offices on this issue. (laughs) Actually, one of many issues. While we talked about all of these topics today, we have not mentioned the budget. Which is the reason we're here for the short session, if you think about it. Speaker Moore and Senator Berger were negotiating this morning. Everyone saw them come out of the speaker's conference room and... The speaker said he thought they were in the final hours of the budget. Okay. And he said, and I quote, it will either result in a new state budget or it won't. (laughs) 
<laughs> Truer words never spoken before. <laughs> he also said that for sure we're concluding the short session next week. And as a final footnote to the budget footnote, <laughs> today the Supreme Court ruled on a North Carolina case. Said that the corner offices, being Senator Phil Berger and Speaker Tim Moore, can intervene into the voter ID case that is being led really by Attorney General Josh Stein. But there's some feeling that because Josh Stein has run on the issue of being against voter ID, I think he has a voting record in the Senate, they think he's giving a half-hearted attempt at defending the state. That is an eight-to-one decision. I think it was Sotomayor who was the dissenting vote. This week, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Senator DeAndrea Salvador. She stopped by the office, and we had a great conversation about her life, her career, and her work in the North Carolina General Assembly. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Senator DeAndrea Salvador, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. To start us off, tell us about your district. Where is your district? Why do you think your district is special? Yeah, um, so I serve Senate District 39 um, in Mecklenburg County. I like to point out because I do have the town of Pineville um, alongside of a large part of Charlotte. And, you know, um, when I was looking at the district to even consider running, Um, A big part of wanting to run was because it just looked like home. You know, I'm born and raised from Charlotte, as is my mom and my grandmother and her mother before her. Um, And, you know, when I looked at the district, it had things such as like my family church, it had my high school, um, it had, of course, my grandmother and mother's house, my elementary school, um, so many community organizations that poured a lot into me. So I think, you know, my favorite thing about the district is absolutely the people, Mm -hmm. um, because I've gotten to really grow up around so many of them. Um, And also see just the growth of Charlotte and North Carolina across the board. Um, But yeah, you know, I really love the district. We have a nature preserve, um, which I love to go with my two boys. We, um, you know, it's just it's just a nice like atmosphere and area to raise a family. What about your family growing up? Tell us about them. For me, I had a really big family and community. Mm -hmm. Um, And growing up is very much anchored in my church because my mother had me at a pretty young age. She was 18 when she had me. Um, And as you can imagine, it it was not expected. And uh, she was just graduating high school, figuring out what she was going to do with her life. And, you know, quite fortunately, my grandparents were right there every step along the way, along with my father, um, up until the point where he got incarcerated. Um, And so, you know, through some of those cycles and instances, um, in addition to my family, my uncle, my grandmother, my grandfather, uh, my great grandmother, so much of that, you know, family unit coming together and pouring into me, you know, I very much had my church family too, Um, like, you know, my pastor or others, even our youth choir. I feel like I developed a larger sense of community 
um, from just the nuclear family, but you know, our nuclear family uh, was very strong, starting with my great grandmother, who we all just kind of came together for. Um, and she's been an inspiration throughout my life, um, even post her passing away when I was about 10. Mm. So did you grow up in the same household as your grandparents? I did, yeah. For most of it, um, there was a point as my mother, um, when she eventually got married to my now stepfather, um, a little bit down the line, um, she did uh, right down the street get a separate house. But I've always had a bedroom at my grandparents' house. It's almost like Mm -hmm. I'm an additional child to them in addition to my uncle and my mom. Um, So I kind of, and they live so close together, I would kind of go to both. My grandmother was a teacher assistant, actually at a school in the district, and so I attended that elementary school. So sometimes it made a lot of sense to ride with her, go to school. Um, I actually would volunteer at that elementary school and like run across the field to get to my middle school in the morning, and my grandma would like look out the window to (laughs) make sure I got there okay. So again, even when I wasn't fully in the house with my grandparents. We all stayed very connected, and they always were a really big part of my life. How old were you when your father was incarcerated? Yeah, so um, I was early elementary school, um, about five or so at the time. It's hard because, I mean, when you start to go that far back, the memories are fuzzy. Um, And, you know, I I am really proud to say that since then my father has um, returned and, um, you know, he even pursued entrepreneurship, which is a big part of why I support entrepreneurship and was able to get himself on his feet and and be a big part of my life and my children's lives post. But yeah, you know, that certainly had an impact to um, see that firsthand and try to understand it. Um, What was also really interesting to me, though, that it wasn't necessarily a unique story. Um, So, you know, I like to point that out too, you know, something that a lot of folks encounter um, is particularly in my neighborhood growing up. So, um, but yeah, you know, I'm really proud of my dad and, you know, he has fully regained his right to vote. So he (laughs) was proudly at the polls and, you know, um, you know, it all kind of comes together um, in an interesting and beautiful, but, you know, sometimes messy story. So that's just kind of life. So you talked a little bit about growing up and kind of what that looked like. Take us through the next stages of your life. College, how did you get here? You know, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd like to go back. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, it's funny. Um, I have always been, and I think because my community, my family, Um, have always been part of like social servants in a way. So like with my grandmother being a teacher, uh, my uncle was a fireman. Uh, He did that right out of high school along with cousins. So we have a lot of firemen in our family. Um, And for me, I think because I saw just how community could come together, I've always been very involved. Um, So even in high school, I worked for a lot of nonprofits um, when I was a student. So I graduated from UNC Charlotte, but I spent my first two years at Wake Forest. Um, I created a theme house, which was called... uh, preparing, relating, empowering, teaming with, and teaching youth, which essentially uh, we work to pair um, Wake Forest 
women students with uh, a local Title I school. We had like a Thanksgiving dinner where I helped to fundraise. We did tutoring and I did that my freshman year um, into sophomore year while I was a student there at Wake. Um, And I I transferred when I realized I didn't want to be a doctor (laughs) anymore. And suddenly the the return on investment wasn't quite, the math wasn't uh, mathing. I listened to my mom and went a business route. Um, but you know, I think that that is a large anchor part and is a continuous part of my journey to the point of me starting a nonprofit once I graduated from college and just kind of having some direct experience throughout my life, whether that was working for nonprofits in high school where we did uh, statewide advocacy on tobacco cessation. Um, and so we did, um, many years ago, there's probably like those true commercials. We would go to local high schools all around and talk about um, that, doing things like advocacy days like kick butts day for the cigarette butts and things of that sort so you know I think it all kind of built up in an interesting way where you know piece by piece it kind of didn't make sense even when I was considering running for office Um, but then when you look at each step and trajectory you kind of like okay it's it's a natural evolution to really seeing the community wondering can I be the right person um, in that correct seat to help you know move things forward in a certain way. I also think you're the first person who has come on our podcast who was a viral sensation. So let's talk a little bit about that. You were a part of a TED Talk that, as this guy said, was viral. Can you tell us a little bit about this? So I was really honored in 2018 to be selected as a TED Fellow. Um, So each year, the TED Conference selects 20 individuals around the world um, who are doing what they just perceive as interesting, meaningful work, and it gives them the opportunity to go to the flagship TED Conference in Vancouver and give a TED Talk um, about your work or social cause or issue, um, whatever it may be. And so, you know, I applied and I was really fortunate to be selected. And as a part of that, I gave the talk. They kind of let you know, hey, you're giving the talk here live. Um, It may not go online. So I kind of had fully expected, like, this is a great opportunity. The TED Fellows community around the world is so supportive. And I I truly think the the biggest gift um, is not really the talk, is the people I met and Mm. the community that I got from it. Even uh, just last week, I was talking to fellows and hearing about their work. It is just such a great, um, like, helpful knowledge share. Um, But yeah, I gave the work that was largely inspired by my nonprofit that I was running at the time, which was focused on uh, energy burdens, which is essentially the percent of income spent on energy costs and was talking about how we have a really um, wonderful opportunity right now with our energy transition to cleaner fuel sources to help lift folks up so that the communities that are traditionally left out of innovation and technology can not only be an active participant, um, but they can also actively see the benefits and and it can um, really, really help to drive their quality of life um, forward. So, you know, I was I was happy that once I heard the news that it was out and then, you know, I received a really wonderful reception. And I'm just happy that I could help spread the word on the issue. Um, a lot of folks are doing great work and um, to be among those that get that opportunity was really special for me. How many views did it have? Um, I haven't actually checked in a really long time. Okay, um, we're going to check on As that. of um, probably... Six months ago, about 1.5 million, I think. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. 
So kind of following up on that, folks know you as this expert in energy. How did you get involved in energy? Yeah, um, so my educational background is economics and being from Charlotte, I think the natural course is to think you're going to go into banking Mm -hmm. (laughs) of some type. And and that's honestly kind of where I thought I might go. You know, um, in college, I had worked for investment bank. Um, I did economic development and government affairs internship, and I kind of thought that would be the route until really a fateful conversation that I heard between my grandmother and her neighbor. Um, And that winter was just pretty cold, like we're getting more of those now um, in the South. And my grandmother and Miss Jacobs were just talking about how difficult it was to keep their houses comfortable. You know, they weren't talking about uh, anything other than their comfort. And mm-hmm. and Miss Jacobs at the time, her husband um, was elderly. He had heart issues. It's really tough for him to regulate his temperature on top of that. And so she was talking about putting blankets on them, even at some points, like looking at opening ovens. And I was just like, that is very unsafe. And so I just naturally jumped into doing research. I'm a very, I I love to analyze, I love data. I love doing research and I just wanted to see what was out there. And I really quickly noticed that there was a gap between some of the more crisis assistance you need bill payment right now and transitioning people to a point where that need uh, was less. By doing energy efficiency, there's so many benefits that somebody can get, um, of course, from the cost savings, but it can help their indoor air quality. It can reduce mold. It can have a lot of health improvements, too. And it also can just make them more comfortable, which is, I think, we would want for our own grandmothers, but like every grandmother across North Carolina. And it became really evident that that was a big problem here in our city, in our state, across the U.S., and so I just essentially dove myself into it. Um, It was kind of a mesh of worlds at the time. I happened to be, and when I got the idea, I actually was still in college, and I was in a, um, finishing out my economics coursework in an energy economics course and was talking to my professor, and we were talking about positive externalities, negative externalities, how some things just get left out. And I felt that a nonprofit could serve a purpose here, mm-hmm. um, but I kind of hope one already existed. <laughs> like, I wanted to give to the nonprofit that, you know, yeah. I felt like could answer that. And the more I searched, the more I couldn't find it. So it kind of snowballed from uh, do starting to do educational work. Uh, we would show people who are renters how to help make their homes more comfortable and save energy. We then kind of turned that into doing more programmatic work, like working with the city of Charlotte on a smart home uh, pilot where we did everything from energy efficiency to looking at how smart home technology can help with energy costs to then working on you know donating solar, working on low to moderate income community solar in South Carolina, as well as uh, just helping to spread the word, working with other organizations that are doing great work to share the kind of lived expertise we were able to get. But yeah, just kind of one step to another. And next thing I knew, I was running an organization and and meeting really great folks. And it, it was so meaningful and important to me. We just passed a landmark energy bill in the last long session, celebrated, signed by the governor, a very bipartisan bill. Your colleagues on the Democratic side say that they really relied on you and your input in negotiating that bill. Senator Newton, of course, is the expert, I would say, on the Republican side. Give us a peek behind the curtain here. Yeah, um, you know, I I was really happy, especially coming in this as a freshman, that we were able to 
have a team-based approach. Um, so we formed essentially what was called our energy huddle um, to dive into the bill and, and get into just the nitty-gritty of, you know, what are the impacts, you know, what, what are the trade-offs, how are things moving forward. Um, and, you know, I, I worked really hard to understand the, the impacts that could be occur and also just trying to understand, like, what is our cost of inaction? Because mm -hmm. um, often you can visualize the cost of if you do something, but if you don't, sometimes that gets lost. And so just trying to utilize some of my experience and understanding, um, I, was, I was able to talk very directly. You know, um, our group met frequently with the governor's team, as well as even with the governor himself to talk about, you know, our concerns, things we wanted to see. And so it was really, you know, I, I won't take credit for that. I would absolutely say it's a team effort, but I was able to use like my time at the Electric Power Research Institute and things I saw there. Um, also, you know, over years I had met at the time Director Delegati, um, so we already had a, a good working relationship, so we were able to dive into, analyze the bill. What is multi-rate making? What are the impacts? Understanding that many other states have multi-rate making, so we need to do it, but make sure we have sufficient guardrails. Those types of things I could bring um, on our side, I helped to convene educational experiences. Hopefully they weren't too much of a snooze fest <laughs> for our members, um, where we would bring in experts to talk about elements that we were likely to see so that they can deepen their understanding. Um, so, you know, it was it was nice. I was so, uh, I feel like I was really rewarded that, um, and lucky that the first year I come in, there's something so relevant to my experience that I could help to chime in for and, and see move forward. And now, you know, that, that bill has become law. We're seeing action at the Utilities Commission as they decide their, their carbon plan. And so, you know, I just, again, I just feel very fortunate. Just from this interview, I'm thinking that you are very methodical, efficient, and you are a freshman legislator, a freshman Democratic legislator. Very important to preface this. You worked on a bill with the Senate Majority Leader, who is a Republican female and another top HHS committee chair. Talk about how you convened that group and how you got those folks aligned with you on a bill. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, I, I would definitely put myself in the methodical type mm -hmm. of, like I like to systematize things and kind of see where they fall. And um, as I was approaching coming into um, the General Assembly, I was starting to think about, well, what are some bills that I want to work on? And, you know, the, the issue of lipedema is one that was quite personal to my family. Um, speaking to my great-grandmother is likely what caused her um, immobility. And I, as I learned more about this women's health issue and the fact that it could impact up to one in nine women and is chronically underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed and to the point that is harder to recover from and that's when you know you may have the illness. It's a Can you explain to folks what that is? Absolutely. So lipedema is a chronic illness. Um, it's progressive. Um, so there's various stages. Um, it, in, it essentially impacts uh, the way your fat cells operate. 
Um, and it can create a lot of pain. Um, so as the stages go along, it can be quite painful to do simple things like standing, exercising, working. Um, and unfortunately, the earlier you are in the chronic illness, the more likely it is for you not to know that's what the cause is. It may be misdiagnosed as something else um, up until the point it's harder to recover from. And so the Lipedema Awareness Association estimates about, along with the um, National Institute of Health, they estimate about one in nine women across the U.S. may suffer from this chronic disease. Fortunately, many uh, may not progress all the way, but we just really don't know. And so um, understanding this, it was something that I really wanted to bring awareness to, as well as try to gain understanding of, like how is this impacting women in our state? Um, I feel like if it's something that can have, be that far reaching, <laughs> it was amazing that we don't know about it. So um, yeah, I just reached out to Senator Harrington and Kravik. I explained the, the issue and I was really fortunate that they um, also saw the not only the personal nature of it, but just that um, they never heard about it. Most folks, I talked to hospitals mm. who weren't as aware of it. And so understanding that something could be that far reaching and could maybe impact women really negatively, I was fortunate that they agreed to kind of sign on. It's kind of one of those things like, uh, and it might be a blessing of being a freshman. You don't know what you don't know. So mm. I just kind of uh, went and knocked on the doors to, to ask. And, and so that just panned out. And I, I did understand that... Um, being in General Assembly in the minority party, it needs to be bipartisan in nature. So that is why I sought them as the bill sponsors, understanding their expertise, as well as that I thought it may be something that might personally resonate with them as women. Let's talk about this methodical uh, Senator Salvador. The Senate is very methodical. The trains run on time. They move bills methodically. The General Assembly as a whole, though, I think we could all describe it as somewhat chaotic, yeah. frenetic. How has that adjustment been coming into the General Assembly as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I think the world is probably more <laughs> like that. <laughs> That's so, right, true. Yeah, so Very I, reflective of North Carolina. Yeah, it's like, so and to a certain extent, also being a parent, I don't think you're going to get your kids to follow a methodical process ever. I have a right. six and eight year old, so I kind of learned to go with the flow um, a little bit, but I think it's a, a, a sense of like understanding trends and inputs and just trying to do what you can the best of it. So I kind of go from a situation, what is the information presented to me? Does this feel like the right move to go? And then at that next, you know, stopping point, I reassess. And so that's kind of a method to the, okay. you know, madness a little bit, but it's not a perfect solution. I just kind of like use a little bit of gut and all of that, but um, I find that just going through life may just prepare me a little bit for it. What was your process in deciding to run? You have a family, this is a lot of time. What made you decide to run? For me, it really goes back to your original question of um, what is my district like? And for me, it is my community. And so as folks were um, probably keeping a closer, way closer eye on the districts than me, I was actually away at a conference. I started to get folks that chimed in to say, hey, have you ever considered running? You know, many years ago, I want to say probably about four years prior, I did a lead and see training that just talked about running for any office 
period. Like okay. it was, it talked about school boards, city council, all of these like various things. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Maybe one day, but not saying, oh, it will be that day. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it just kind of fast forward to the districts being redrawn and there was an open seat in my community. When I looked at it, I felt like I could be a good person to, to run and, and to represent. My first question was like, is somebody else trying to right, right. <laughs> do this? Um, because I, I'm very supportive of like, if there, I felt like there was somebody better, I don't think I would be a blocker in the way. Um, I'm not a natural person that just wants to thrush, like thrust myself into the spotlight. I really um, am a little bit more of a policy wonk, behind the scenes type of person just naturally. Um, but it made, it made me really motivated because I could see so much of the community that made me who I am in a unique opportunity to serve in a greater capacity than with my nonprofit, which can be limited to scale or resources. Um, and so for me, I just quickly talked to my family. I talked to my husband, of course. Um, I talked to the kids. I told my mom, grandma, y'all have to agree. Mm -hmm. It will be all hands on deck. And we're really fortunate that each of them live within 10 minutes so they can be a helping hand to my husband. And then we just tried to like get creative once I did come. So, um, you know, sometimes we bring the boys, the boys last summer, because that was a very long session. Mm -hmm. They actually did summer camp in Raleigh. So they got to kind of have a home away from home a little bit so that we wouldn't have as much time apart. Um, we do a lot of FaceTime, a lot of games over there. Um, so we just kind of figured it out and they, um, they, I try to include them in the process for mm -hmm. my kids to talk about, you know, if a bill is moving or what we're doing. And so they are, are really understanding and very flexible, which is has been really great. But it was just that conversation and saying we're going to figure it out together because it was my first time running for anything. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, we're going to learn and we're going to we're going to make a website. We're going to figure out how this process goes and we're going to learn together. And that's kind of just how we've been doing it. Was there ever a time in college or high school or even earlier where you thought yeah well, one day I'd like to be a state senator oh no <laughs> okay okay <All laughs> no right. no 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 not not anything political yeah it, it never I I could yeah no you seem so complex how would you describe yourself in four words yeah um, it's funny. I will probably I could probably do it in one. Okay, go um, ahead. And I and efficient. I agree. Yeah, efficient could be one, but <laughs> I would probably say an enigma. Um, I think I am puzzling to folks at times because uh -huh. I just kind of go about things in a, a very unique fashion. That's uniquely DeAndrea, um, and I just kind of I don't know. I I think that is something. If I was thinking about myself, it is, I can be a little puzzling to folks, and that's just who I am. Has that yeah. served you well in the Senate, maneuvering all of, just, you know, we have our traditions, we have our partisanship, we have new legislators, veteran legislators. I don't know. I mean, I, I would probably ask somebody externally. I think anybody would probably say, oh, yes, I'm doing great. But I don't, I mean, I hope people feel that I'm working hard, that I'm trying to learn, that I'm, I'm effective in my role. Um, but I am also my own biggest critic. So, okay. um, you know, I, I like to say, you know, hopefully the impact speaks for itself. And if that impact is reaching far enough, then the answer is yes. If it's not, then 
you iterate and you evolve and you kind of go from there. And so that's, again, it's not quite an answer because mm -hmm. I'm really not sure, mm -hmm. um, which is why you just kind of go each day and, and see what you can learn and, and take from there. Well, let me ask you this. Are you enjoying the job? I do enjoy the job. Good. Yeah, I okay. do. I, I enjoy the job. Um, I think it is very fulfilling, also times very frustrating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if when you can see um, something, when you see your role making a impact, I think that is, is truly incredible. When you can speak up to something that may otherwise have been missed or not seen from a certain perspective, I think that is really worth it. And if I wasn't enjoying it, I think I would certainly not have run again right. um, mm -hmm. to be away from my family and my uh, my husband, my kids, then my extended family um, as a whole. So, um, you know, clearly I, I do enjoy it enough to you know, hope that everybody elects me so I can return. I'm sure you've seen since being here and nationally that we are incredibly divided in our politics. If you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in our political system today, what would it be? That is a, a very thoughtful kind of question because it, it forces you to choose one. And I, I would say I would likely go with uh, money in politics. Mm -hmm. and, and the main reason being, I think it can... Um, it can be a root of a number of things. So we have, of course, uh, the fight against misinformation. Outside of being a legislator, I work for a data privacy company um, that is very kind of focused on uh, giving individuals their rights to privacy. And for me, I think money can fuel that. It can fuel so much. And it can be a distraction from like actually doing the work, like having to do call time or some other things while great um, to get your message out. Um, is if you could just talk to as many constituents as possible, I think that would be far better um, and hopefully not quite as partisan. But I don't, I, don't, I don't know if there's a magic wand per se mm -hmm. to fix it, but that would be one thing that I would certainly use it for. Well, Senator DeAndrea Salvador, we appreciate everything you do for your district, everything you do in the North Carolina Senate. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. Senator Salvador is so smart. You could tell that from the interview. Like I said, I learned that she's pretty methodical and also a viral sensation. Tweet, tweet of, of the week. week. This week's tweet of the week is from Will Doran. He's at Will underscore Doran, and he is a reporter with the News and Observer. So he was talking about the sports gambling bill, and so he's saying NC House is holding a floor debate on sports betting with votes soon, blah, 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 and then says a lawmaker just whispered to Brian Murphy and him that, quote, it's like a kidney stone. It's painful, but it will pass. Turns out we're still in the painful part. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a kidney stone. <laughs> I have a series of questions for you. Okay. Are you prepared? No. <laughs> 
Why you look so nervous? <laughs> okay, number one, would you consider yourself my best friend? Yes. Number two, would you consider yourself to be someone who looks out for me? Yes. Number three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Proceed. Are you getting more nervous? Yes. Do you think I would tell you <laughs> if you had something on your face? I think you would. I think you would take actually a lot of enjoyment in telling Well, this me. is the thing. When you do have something, or you'll have something on your face, you have food on your face. Mm-hmm. Or here, let me get that. Yeah. A lick of the hand, yeah. fix your hair. My follow-up question, why is it that you do not tell me when I have something on my face? I did not see that you had lipstick on your face. I would have told you that. It was... A morning meeting, a lot's going on, you know, and I... No, actually, so we... (laughs) (laughs) I don't need your spin zone right now because we were outside the committee room for like 10 minutes talking together before we went into this committee. Mm -hmm. Brian and I, you know, a foot and a half away from each other talking, and then we go into committee and I go up to talk to a legislator and he's like, hey, Sky, you've got something on your face. And all I'm thinking is, Brian Lewis has been staring at my face and talking to me, and he just let me embarrass myself. I didn't see it. And by the way, we're talking about Senator Danny Earl Britt. (laughs) We don't have to give him name recognition on every podcast. We actually do, because Senator Mike Woodard, I learned this week, because, you know, we we did a shout out to him because he was in Iraq and he came back. And I said, you hear, hear our shout out to him? He's like, I did. I appreciate it. And he has a ledger that's running that has how many times we've mentioned Senator Britt, how many times we've mentioned Majority Leader John Bell, Jason Sain, the whole list. And then he's down there. He says he's gotten seven mentions. So actually, Senator Woodard and Senator Britt, you both get a mention today. (laughs) Thank you, Senator Britt, for noticing that Sky had makeup. And not letting me make a fool of myself all day long, which clearly Brian Lewis was willing to do. Yeah, I'm sorry. If I'd seen it, I would tell you. It's not like I saw it and thought, I'm just going to let her walk around like this all day. I are you sure? Positive. You I know, thought we were tighter than that. We are tight. But, you know, sometimes I have my reading glasses on, which means everything long, you know. You didn't have your reading glasses blurry. on. I'm sh- well, don't, maybe- no, you didn't have your reading glasses on. And by the way, you don't need glasses to see a smear of lipstick. Let's inspect each other every day. Make sure we don't have I do on inspect face, you huh? all the time. I'm like, mm-hmm. dude, nose hair. Sorry about that, Sky. I really am. Uh, I'll do better by you. I'm going to make sure you don't have lipstick all over your face. <laughs> <laughs> all over my face. Now we're being dramatic. <laughs> so we're wrapping up the short session. Next week, I'm sure, is going to be a packed week, and we will unload it all on next week's Do Politics Better podcast. In the meantime, like, subscribe, share with your colleagues. If somebody wants to get caught up on what happened this week we'd love it if you shared this podcast with them we'll talk to you next week maybe sooner in the meantime please remember to do politics better